tore out of my sleeping bag and jumped to my feet. I opened my eyes up as wide as they would go, but it was no use. The darkness was total. I couldn't see anything, but I could definitely hear. Just a few feet away was a ferocious animal, snorting, stomping, and coming toward me fast. I tightened my fingers around the branch in my hands and braced for battle. This was back in 2005, and I was living in France, there in Paris, and I was renting a room from a French family, and this family was great. I've spoken about them on the show before, but at one point in my stay, I felt like I'd sort of offended them because, well, dinner was served one night, and the main dish appeared to be an exotic bird, and it was cooked whole, including the head, and I took a bite, and the meat was unlike anything that I'd ever had before. The texture especially was unfamiliar and really caught me off guard. But I smiled and I kept chewing and I asked in my really limited French, uh, I just said, you know, thank you for this dinner. What kind of bird, by the way, is this? And the family sort of laughed and looked at each other and they said, oh, it's not a bird. This is rabbit. And I'd never had rabbit. And I was really surprised and a little, <laughs> a little uncomfortable. And I think I didn't do a great job of hiding my discomfort. And anyway, it really wasn't a big deal, but I felt like I had offended them over that rabbit dinner. So for a little while after that, I would sometimes feel a little bit of tension around the house, whether it was actually there or not. And so whenever I had free time, especially on the weekends, I would try to spend it elsewhere. I would pass entire days just walking the streets of Paris or exploring the city's um, museums and parks and the forests outside the city. And then when night came, instead of going back to their place to sleep in my bed, I would sometimes just camp in one of those forests. And it was low-key, very primitive camping. I had no tent, no pillow or fire or light of any kind. And on the night of my encounter with this animal... I was camping in the forest of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which is on the northwest edge of Paris. And just before sunset, I found what I thought was a secluded and safe location in the woods. And it was a really beautiful forest, densely populated with huge oak trees. These oaks just jutted up into the sky, and their, their leaves formed a very dense canopy overhead. And this was in mid-spring, so it wasn't too cold even without a tent or a fire for camping. So I spread my sleeping bag on the ground, and I spent the last few minutes of daylight strumming my guitar. And then just before going to sleep, I remembered having heard from a friend that besides the deer that were indigenous to the forests there, that there was also a species of wild boar that was fairly common. And so I felt pretty, pretty certain that I was being paranoid, but I took the precaution, right before it got dark, of finding a big sturdy branch. If a boar attacked me, I didn't want to have to do a, a Jimi Hendrix kind of guitar smashing on the animal. I loved my guitar way too much for that, so I, I placed this big, thick piece of a branch beside my sleeping bag. And, you know, as I said, I was pretty sure that I was being paranoid. But I crawled inside the sleeping bag, and I remember I was using my Italian leather shoes as a pillow. 
which wasn't very comfortable. But I just laid there for a while, and I wasn't yet asleep, just laying there hoping to drift off soon. And then from a thicket of undergrowth about 20 feet from where I was laying, a boar emerged. The snorting and grunting and stomping were the most terrifying sounds I had ever heard. And probably the most terrifying I ever have heard since then. I tore out of the sleeping bag and I jumped to my feet. I was furious at my eyes. No starlight or moonlight could penetrate the thick foliage canopy above us. So I couldn't see and I felt like my eyes were betraying me when I needed them most. But I grabbed that big branch and I violently struck the trunk of the nearest tree hoping that the sound would scare that boar away. But the animal was unfazed. It was snorting and stomping, and it sounded like it was charging at me. And I kept hitting the tree, and I was shouting, but he kept charging closer. The trajectory of his approach seemed to be kind of zigzagged instead of direct. That, at least, was the only explanation I could come up with as to why I didn't yet have a tusk lodged through my jugular. I feared genuinely for my life. When the boar was just a few feet away, I turned the branch so that it was perpendicular to the ground. And holding it with both hands, I rammed the end of it onto the ground, kind of like I was trying to stab it into the earth. And the boar suddenly stopped. It was still breathing really loudly, but I could hear that it wasn't coming closer anymore. It wasn't moving. Through his hooves, he had detected the vibration from this big piece of wood hitting the ground. And he had apparently determined that I was a bigger, scarier animal than he had previously estimated. After I saw that it had given him pause, I struck the ground again and again. And after a few more seconds, the boar turned around and trotted away. I decided that I was even more poorly equipped for camping than I'd originally calculated, so I rolled up my sleeping bag, and I put those Italian shoes back on, and with my guitar in my left hand and that big branch in my right hand, I started home. That's a story that I've told to friends and family several times over the years, and I've thought about telling it on The Sun Also Rises for quite a while, but I wasn't quite sure what sort of episode to work it into, or what lesson to draw from it. There are all kinds of morals, really, that you could take from it, like the importance of maintaining a good relationship with those that you live with, or about the value of mending rifts quickly when they happen. Or it could maybe reinforce the old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. But finally, it seemed like the best way to go would maybe be to just let the story be an example of the value of story itself. We're pretty deep in the show to just now be stating its purpose, but there it is, storytelling. And I think this is a worthwhile topic because there's little in human experience that hooks attention and rivets and holds attention like a story. So I hope this episode will encourage you in your communication with others to more regularly harness the power of story. There's an old saying that says, great stories happen to those who know how to tell them. 
And I think it's a, a beautiful and a true adage because it's basically saying life is interesting. Most any aspect of life, even normal everyday life, contains experiences that are interesting, valuable, and relatable from one person to another. But only if we'll make up our minds to live life and to experience it and to communicate it to others with a storyteller's mindset. Great stories happen to those who know how to tell them. Mr. Joel Hilliker is the host of Trumpet Hour here on KPCG, and he's written about the power of storytelling in a, in a manual that he wrote on communication. One quote from that manual says, Often, what separates the great speaker from the mediocre speaker is the stories he uses. This is an invaluable tool for improving your speaking. Understanding this concept will help you add sparkle and memorability to every presentation you give. End quote. So it is a powerful tool for anyone who wants to communicate with others in a way that's effective and memorable. One of the reasons why storytelling is so impacting and so memorable is because the human brain was designed to be basically transported by story. The neuroscience of the brain shows this. Jonathan Gottschall is the author of How Stories Make Us Human, and here's what he says on this topic. The neuroscience of the brain on story gives us a bit of insight into this. You can slide a person into an fMRI machine, and the machine will read the brain as the brain is reading a story. It can watch the brain while the brain is watching a story. And one of the cool things that come out of this research is that the brain looks less, your brain looks less like a spectator on the action than it does a participant. So if Clint Eastwood is up there on screen and he's angry, your brain looks angry too. If the scene is sad, your brain looks sad too. Not like you're sitting back passively and watching someone else get angry or sad, but you are actually experiencing the emotions yourself. So story is so powerful for us, at least in part, because at a neurological level, whatever's happening on the page or on the stage isn't just happening to them, it's happening to us as well. We know it's fake, we totally know it's fake, but that doesn't stop unconscious parts of the brain from processing what we're seeing as though it's real. That's an astounding testimony to the power of story. It's saying that when we hear a story, on some neurological level, we are actually like a participant in it. We're, we're transported into that story. We've spoken on the show several times about Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. He was the pastor general of the Worldwide Church of God until his death in 1986. And Mr. Armstrong was well aware of the power of story. If you read his, his uh, books and articles and booklets or listen to the recordings of uh, the messages that he delivered, you'll notice that he very often pulls the reader in with a narrative. In his autobiography, Mr. Armstrong explained that that was not a natural tendency or gift for him, but it was something that he had to learn and had to develop. He learned about it when he was young and he was working for an advertising company. Here's a quote from his autobiography. In writing advertising, I learned always to tell a story, to make it interesting, and to tell it in story form. It must arouse instant interest. It must create suspense. It must develop rapidly, lucidly, 
increasing the interest toward the final solution or answer. It must hold the interest until the story is told. End quote. And then a little deeper into his autobiography, Mr. Armstrong explains that he later learned that the power of story is every bit as applicable in speaking as it is in advertising. So Mr. Armstrong understood the power of story, and he tapped into it very often to get his message, or God's message, really, through to people. And it should come as no surprise that a man that God used to deliver his message would understand and tap into the power of story, because God created people with our brains hardwired to connect to stories. The Bible shows us that God often harnessed the power of story to convey his messages to people. One of the most compelling examples of this happened with King David, and this was a few months after David had really hit a low point in his life. He had committed adultery with a married woman and then had actually had that woman's husband killed to try to keep the whole thing a secret. And then instead of repenting, for these sins. King David was basically just trying to forget about what he'd done on some level. He was trying to just move on. And that's when Nathan the prophet was sent to David, and he told him a story. Nathan told him the story of two men. The first was a rich man who owned many flocks of livestock and many herds. And the second man was poor. He only owned one lamb. This little lamb was like a family member to the poor man. It was very dear to him. It lived inside his house with him, and it you know, snuggled with him when he slept and even shared meals with this man. This one little lamb was everything to this poor man. And in the story that Nathan told David, the rich man who had all those flocks and herds took this one precious lamb from the poor man. So instead of slaughtering one of his own myriad sheep, the rich man took the one and only animal from this, this impoverished individual. And King David knew people like both of these men in the story. He knew the wealth and the, the callous greed and entitlement of the one man, and he knew the poverty and the simple comforts of the other. And with this masterful story, this story that was presumably crafted right in God's mind, God's prophet was able to reach David's heart. Nathan told the story masterfully, and David was able to see that the rich man was a representation of himself and what he had done with the married woman. Nathan actually pointed that out to David. He said, you are this rich man. And this story reached David's heart, and it made David personally feel the righteous indignation toward this fictional rich man in the story that the nonfiction God felt toward the nonfiction David. David was able to be transported into God's point of view with this fictional story. He was able to see that what he had done was no small thing and that it couldn't just be swept under the rug and forgotten about. But I think this is fascinating because God could have inspired Nathan to use any number of other methods to get David's attention. You know, Nathan could have delivered a three-point lecture on adultery, murder, and refusing to repent, quoting the law verse by verse. Or God could have even had the slain man's battle-torn body dug up from the earth and laying at David's feet. 
You know, there are all kinds of different ways that God could have gotten the message through to David, but God used story. And with it, he reached David's heart. With story, God pulled David back from the brink of eternal death. That's the power of story. This situation with King David and the way that he was so impacted by storytelling really proves what we mentioned earlier about the neuroscience of the brain and how people are designed to be transported by story. Beginning, middle, end. Suffering, struggle, overcoming. Setup, confrontation, denouement. It works. This pattern has always worked and it always will because we were created to connect to this formula. And not just to be educated and corrected by it, but even to be transported by it. Stories make us think about our own lives. They make us connect to what we're hearing and to what we've personally experienced. And, and that's really at the heart of what makes stories so powerful. And now I'd like to tell you a story here. Even just hearing me say those words, you might notice that it makes you sort of lean in a little closer and give more of your attention. But here it is. There was once a man who got home from work one day, and his wife met him at the door, and he said, Hi, dear, how are you? How has your day gone so far? And she was pretty distraught. She said, Well, not so good, actually. I've been working on a puzzle in the other room there, and I thought it would be enjoyable and relaxing, but instead, it's been really stressful. I've been at it for over an hour, and so far I don't think I have um, a single piece of this puzzle that's, that I've been able to connect to any other piece of it. It's really frustrating. Her husband asked her what the completed puzzle was supposed to depict, and she said, well, according to the box, it's supposed to be a picture of a rooster just kind of standing there. So her husband goes into the other room and looks at the table where the box and all the pieces are spread out. And he looks at his wife and says, Well, dear, first of all, no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to make these pieces, um, you know, be assembled into anything resembling a rooster. And he takes her hand and he says, Now I just want you to relax and I'll put all these cornflakes back in the box. So that's, that's just a silly joke there and one that you may have heard before, but storytelling is a lot like joke telling. It's knowing your punchline or your ending and your, your moral, really, from the outset and knowing that everything you say from the first sentence to the last is heading toward that singular goal. An effective story should contain all the necessary information, but very few irrelevant details. It can have some color and some description, but it should contain little that isn't leading up to the moral or the purpose. That's why it's difficult to listen to a child tell a story sometimes, because you think that it's all leading to some coherent epiphany or point, but it turns out that it's just a lot of disjointed details kind of stitched together with endless conjunctions. And like some tedious, artsy indie film, you realize only when it's too late that it was never pressing toward any real purpose. So anyway, that's just a small tip to keep in mind. If you want to make storytelling effective and impacting, you really have to make sure that like a well-delivered joke, all that you say from the first sentence to the very last is leading toward that singular goal. Mm-hmm.
Well, we're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises now here on KPCG-FM. I really appreciate you tuning in today. And if you've never read the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, I hope you'll go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab and we'll send you an entirely free hard copy of this exceptional book. It has a lot to say on the power and value of effective storytelling. And it also demonstrates that power really from the first chapter to the last with some of the most valuable stories that have ever been told. So I hope you'll check that out. And I hope you'll also make up your mind to harness the power of story more often, not just in your formal communication, but even in your everyday conversation with friends and family. Not everything will be a story with big dramatic turns and plot twists and surprises and tidy morals to learn from them. And not all of your stories will be effective, especially if you're just starting out with the art of story. And of course, we should also keep in mind that it's possible to overdo it. You know, if your wife asks you what you'd like for dinner, and you answer with, Behold, there were two men, a translucent man who dined on salad. (laughs) You know, maybe that would be memorable in some ways, but it might just be obnoxious if if you overdo it. But anyway, if you work at it and use story to add color to your communication and use it to make people care, then you will be serving others and enriching their lives. We'll all be listening. We'll be leaning in a little closer, focusing a little more on what you're saying and having our iron sharpened by yours because we all love a good story. Thank you again, and I'll leave you today with the words of Aaron Morgenstern. He said, You may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul, becomes their blood and self and purpose. That tale will move them and drive them, and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. (laughs) 